Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, that is the Old Testament reading this morning. And then we'll be going over to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. And this is the word of the Lord. Give ear to it. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There's no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there's any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, and you, you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And now let's turn over to the New Testament. Reading our text for today, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Verses 9 through 19. Paul says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. When the reading there this morning. May God bless it to his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you once again as we come before your word. We do not do so lightly. We come before it with all reverence, Lord God, all um, acknowledge, acknowledgement of your holiness and your righteousness and your justice We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. And I just pray so much that you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be engaged, that we would be moved, that we would be continue to be transformed, sanctified in our lives, living more and more for Jesus Christ, understanding the nature of sin, the battle of sin, and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that saves us from our sin. And that's That's the only way of salvation. So please help us to be aware of these things in our own hearts and our own lives, even as we see it as those among us and around us, Lord God, that we may come forth and preach powerfully the gospel of the kingdom, that you would bring your elect in, that you would save your people from their sins, that we may rejoice in your presence for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen and praise God. All right, we're coming to the end of this first major section where Paul talks about sin, and I don't know where I heard it. Maybe it was one of you, or maybe I heard it somewhere else, that this section is kind of um, likened to a boxing match. 
You know, we're just kind of, where Paul's talking about sin and the sin nature. And it's like being in a boxing match with a, a heavyweight champ, right? And we're just, we're just taking the blows and taking the blows. We've gone 11 rounds. We have one more round to go, if you want to keep with that simile, I guess, uh, being in this boxing match. Uh, you know, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul introduces the gospel, and he tells us about the good news. But then he takes a long break from 118 to uh, 320 and talks about our sin nature. And by the way, that's an excellent pattern when we are preaching the gospel. We kind of forget to talk about sin. We kind of pass over that lightly. Paul doesn't do that. Before he gets to the gospel of grace, he teaches us about our sinfulness and our sin nature and that there's no other way apart from Christ, right? So we have to give that difficult news, the reality of our sinfulness when we're talking to people, our family, our friends. So we bring the sweetness of the gospel to the bitterness of the, our sinfulness. So just saying that in passing. But in this section, this major section, um, regarding our situation, apart from salvation, we've talked about sin. We've seen the culpability of sin, that we're all responsible for our sin before God. And the solution doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes outside. It's an alien righteousness that we need. This section covers the length, the depth, the breadth of sin. And the doctrine that's in view, that has been in view, we've talked about this before, we'll talk about it again today because it's right before us, is the doctrine of total depravity when it comes to sin. I know some people don't really like that term, choose to say radical corruption. I don't care what term you use, pervasive depravity, total inability. I like total depravity. It's the standard. It's good. It describes our situation. And all that means is this. Please listen to this. Total depravity, two big ideas. Number one, as a consequence of the fall of man into sin, every single solitary person, save Christ, every person born of natural generation is born morally corrupt. We're born sinful. We're born enslaved to sin. We can't get away from it. We're corrupted in that way. Apart from grace, we are unable to choose Christ. Total depravity, right? That's the broad definition. Narrowly, narrow, a narrow definition is the idea that sin has affected Every single aspect of our being. Do you understand that? Every, there's no place that's safe. There's no place that's free from sin within our being. Every, our heart has been affected by sin. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies, even as we get sick and die, so on and so forth. It's seen in our sinful actions. Total depravity is seen in our self-deception, man. We deceive ourselves. Think about before you were a Christian. Think about people that are not believing in Christ today. They are deceiving themselves because total depravity clouds the clear picture of our sinfulness, but we don't want to see that. So, in essence, total depravity simply means that you are more sinful than you think you are, right? That you're more separated from God than you can imagine and that you're more deserving of punishment then you'd want to admit, right? Amen, that's it, man. I, I try to think of a way to, to, to show the depth of our sin and to, and to feel the weight and to feel the, I don't know, just the, the condemnation that we're under. And I, I'm not, I'm, you know I'm not great with illustrations, so here goes. Um, imagine yourself before the Lord or you're in the presence of the Lord and there's a film, nine millimeter if you're old enough, or a video if you're younger, I guess, but just of every 
Just think about this for a minute. You're with the Lord in every single sin. Just think about yourself that you have committed in your life. Think about that. Every every time from when you were a little kid, as far back as you can remember, you're standing before the Lord and every sin is just playing right there before you and him. Every time you transgress the law, every sinful thought, every sinful intention, every sinful word, every sinful action before the Lord. I mean, how long would you be there? How long would that take? Weeks, months, years as it's and that's the idea of the depth and the breadth of and, and the scope of our corruption that's how sinful we are we are doesn't that make grace so amazing and wonderful and that's what we need i hope that kind of worked for you but it's kind of this idea and paul is ending this section going back to the the boxing simile he's ending it with a flurry you ever see like kind of at the end of the fight when the dude is just not just boom 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 like sugar ray leonard used to do if you're old enough to remember sugar ray that's kind of what's happening here it's a flurry of blows he brings together several different scriptures from the old testament we read from psalm 53 there are other psalms and proverbs that he brings in to show us the depth of our sin and the need of grace in jesus christ alone that's where this is all leading to is grace grace in Christ. So from 9 to 12, verses 9 to 12, it's just a broad description of our sinfulness, of our depravity, and then 13 through 18 are particular ways in which we sin, kind of our depravity on display, if you want to put it in that way. So 9 and 10, just note, number one, we're going to go through this very systematically in this way. What it's written, are there any, are the Jews better off? No. Jews aren't better off, they still need Christ. Gentiles aren't better off, they still need Christ. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So the first thing you need to understand, that there are no exceptions. We've talked about this. I'm not going to go over that ground again. There are no, it's universal condemnation. Every single person, everywhere, all the time, no excuses. It doesn't matter if you're born in the jungles of South America or in the heart of the Bible Belt. You are accountable to God. There is no one who is righteous. And that's very emphatic. See the, those negative statements? You know, when you, they're not trying to be positive. He's not sugarcoating it. You know, people are just kind of this way. No, he's saying no one. Negative in that way. There's some fat, he's, he's emphasizing, he's emphatic. There's no one who is righteous. In other words, our entire being is affected by sin. That's what he's saying. That's total depravity, right? No one is righteous. It's not that you were good gone bad. And that's what a lot of people like to kind of think these days. And that's kind of the the milieu that we're living in. That we're basically good. How many of you think we're basically naturally good by nature? Somebody in this church raises their hand, you're in big trouble. (laughs) But that's the prevailing attitude among so many. We're basically good people, but it's our environment. It's, It's the way we're raised. It's the examples that we see before us that make us bad. No, no, no. When he says you are not righteous, that means that we are inherently not good. We are inherently sinful. We are not righteous. In God's eyes, no one is good enough. In other words, to be able to be blameless before him, to be acceptable to him, to be innocent, to be holy before almighty God. We're not righteous. We don't have that righteousness in and of ourselves. We're inherently sinful. That's what he's saying. Our entire being, total depravity, is affected by sin. Listen, people 
People that you talk to every day that don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they know this to a degree. They know, intuitively they know. Now they deceive themselves. There's deception, there's distortion of this doctrine, of this idea. And nobody, like the people that you talk to that aren't believers, they're not going to say, yes, I know that I'm inherently sinful. We know that because our eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. We understand that. But before you were a Christian, you might say, I'm not a great person, but I'm not totally depraved in my mind, not totally affected by sin. I'm pretty good. There's something, there's an island of righteousness there. No, they're not going to say that. But they will acknowledge that something's wrong with them. All the time. People are always looking for a substitute righteousness, a false righteousness, because that's, that's, that's our nature. That's what we need it. People know that they need it, and they know that they're not righteous, but they're not going to come to the true and living God until he opens their eyes. They're going to keep rejecting him, right? That's, that's part of that blindness, part of our depravity. But talk to people all the time. They'll acknowledge something's wrong with them, that they need to improve in some way. Go ahead, talk to your friends. Anybody, they need to attain some kind of righteousness. So what do they say? I'm going to self-improvement classes. I'm, I'm seeing my therapist because I know I need to be better. Something's not quite right. I'm, I'm not there yet, but hey, I'm getting there. Again, it's inverted. It's twisted. It's distorted. There's deception there, but it is kind of getting to a form of righteousness, right? We're all striving for that in some way. Every, everybody knows that something's wrong with them. And believer goes on these ways. Hey, how many times have you heard this? I'm going to change my ways. That's it. I'm starting on Monday, we'll start fresh Monday. It was one of our favorite sayings. Mess up, you know, go through the week. Start fresh on Monday, and that's it. All right? I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to get religion. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to improve myself that I may be accepted somehow, some way by someone. We're looking for that righteousness. The Bible says no. And I'm going to infuse grace all along the way as we go through this today. I'm not just going to leave you with the despair and the reality of our sin, but also the flip side of the, the grace and mercy that we receive because no one is righteous. And we can't attain that righteousness no matter how hard we try, no matter where you look, no matter what you do, no matter what you put yourself into, no matter how hard you try to improve yourself, go ahead. It's not going to work. You're still going to be empty. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have hope. You're not going to have real purpose and meaning in your life until Christ changes you. Only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, do we receive righteousness. A righteousness, we'll be talking much more about this, outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness, an imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness, because we don't have what it takes to make that righteousness up before God. Amen? So that's why he says, no one is righteous, not one of you. And you know that. He goes on, and he says, no one understands. That means our minds, sin affects our thinking, right? Our minds are affected by sin. That's the noetic effect of sin. That's what theologians call it, that sin affects our mind, our thinking. What's that look like? We twist. We misconstrue reality all the time. It doesn't mean you can't think by God's common grace and in God's grace, yes, we can, we can line up with his thoughts. We've, we've talked about that. We bear the image of God. But as unbelievers, think about before you were Christ. Your mind was your, like you thought differently than you do now, don't you? I hope so. Because now we have the truth. So your unbelieving friends, they, 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 they don't, know what they think they know, right? So when we talk about God, you could talk about man, you could talk about sin, salvation. Go ahead, try it this week. Talk to a friend, family member that's non-believing, co-worker about God, and you'll get an opinion for sure. 
It's usually arbitrary. Well, I think God is this. And doesn't, you're not going to get God's thought because our mind is affected by sin. So you're not going to get the truth about man and our sinfulness and Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation. That's because sin affects our minds. And we were there, even you know, being raised in a religious, kind of quasi-religious home in that way. Hey, I, I, you know, this way is good for me, but that way might be good for you because we're not thinking his thoughts after him. Sin, salvation, heaven, hell. Ask people about it. You'll get all kinds of different answers. Why? Because sin affects their thinking. It's not clear until you come to an understanding of Scripture. And who gives us that understanding? Who opens our minds? It's the Holy Spirit by the grace of God. Amen. It always comes back to the gospel. He grants us knowledge, and then we see clearly, and then we think clearly. We still battle with that, right? When our thoughts are, we struggle, and we don't, we know the truth. We know the will of God, and we still fight with that as we're being sanctified, but it's not like it was before, right? When you thought you knew it all, when you thought you had the answer, well, I think, you know, these people get, sin affects it. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's telling. This is the, the total depravity, the noetic effect, noetic effect of sin. No one seeks after God. He goes on to say that. Sin affects our will, doesn't it? Total depravity affects our will. It says no one seeks after God. People are seeking, though. Everybody's seeking something. Again, just, just like we've spoken just earlier. People are always doing these things. It's just distorted. It's just twisted. It's just convoluted because they're taking the, the truth of God and suppressing that, twisting that, turning that. So everybody's seeking for something, aren't they? They're seeker of many lowercase gods, but not the true and living God. And that's the way it is. We want a God of our own making. People know they need something else. People know they need someone else. They need a higher power. They need this. They need that. It might be another person. Whatever idol they put before themselves, but people know. People are seeking. I'm on a journey. That's a big deal these days, huh? I'm on a journey. I'm on a spiritual journey. Leave me, you know, just let me follow my path through this way. Watch Oprah. Don't watch Oprah, but if you watch Oprah, you'll see this all the time. You'll hear this, this kind of talk. Right? We're following our path. And we live in a day and age with the syncretism, all kinds of religions being mushed, mashed together in that way. We so admire Eastern religions, right? Contemplation, meditation. I went out there seeking God in, in, in those ways. But what they're doing is seeking God's lowercase, God's permission. They're seeking guidance. They're seeking advice. They're seeking to better themselves so they can kind of get what they want. They're not seeking the true and living God. That's why he says no one seeks after me. People are seeking, but they don't want the true and living God. Right? You don't want that. Especially now, today. You need to know, man, we're in a big time battle. It's not people aren't just neutral and they're saying, okay, Christians, just go do your thing over there. No, no, and your God is your... What they, you know what they're saying about God these days? In progressive Christian circles, liberal Christian circles, outside the church, they're saying that our God, the God of the Bible, is an arbitrary God. He's a vindictive God. He's a restrictive God who doesn't know true love. He, he's not letting me be who I truly am and won't accept it. He's a cruel God. He's a partial God. These are very real objections that you're going to hear if you haven't heard them already from the world because they don't want this God. They want a God. Right? But no one seeks after this God. He's a capricious God. He just kind of acts whimsically. Whatever he might, you know, boom, I'm mad now. And, you know, they're not looking for him. 
They're not searching for him. They don't want to find him. They don't want to know his will, his ways. Go ahead, try to tell somebody who's not a believer God's will and God's ways and see what happens. Oh, no, 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 no. We want this way where, where I'm going to be affirmed and I'm going to be accepted and I'm going to be embraced. But don't tell me about this God that demands this from me, that I give up myself, that, I, that I'm a sinner, that I confess, that I have to leave everything to follow him. No, no, no. We don't seek him, but by the grace of God, he seeks us. Amen. Pray. How many know that he has sought you and he has purchased you? He seeks and saves the lost. He pursues us. We run away. We're like Adam and Eve after they sin. And the Lord comes in the cool of the day and he calls for them. What do they do? We're here, Lord. We're, we were looking for you, Lord. No, 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 no. They were hiding behind a tree. They were hiding. Oh, we heard you in the cool of the day. We, we just were avoiding you. That's what people do. He pursues. He seeks and saves the lost. He captures us by his loves and saves us by his grace. And you know that if you're a Christian this morning, don't you? And then we seek to follow him. Praise God. Amen. That's how it works. No one's seeking after him, apart from his grace and mercy and love, right? This is the world we're living. This is total depravity. It keeps us from him. It says, all have turned aside. That's really strong language. That's willful action. So it's not just, um, I kind of don't know your God. No, you know God. You're turning aside from him. You're turning away from him. He said, all have turned aside. That's a willful action. That means to deviate. That means to avoid on purpose. That means to change course. How many times have you done this? When, when you don't want to see somebody, you're not expecting to see somebody, or you owe somebody something, hopefully not too much. You might owe them money. I don't know what. Or <laughs> you know you're in trouble if you, get it, you know, have to talk to this person. And you're in a crowd, and you're not expecting to see them at the mall or something, and you see them, what do you do? You walk up to them, hey, long time no see. You turn around as soon as you see them. You turn away. Oh, no. All of us have done that at some point in some time. You see somebody that you don't want to see, that you don't want to be with, and as soon as you see them, you turn aside, you deviate, you make a beeline in the other direction. That's what he's saying here when they see God. All have turned aside. Anytime they capture a glimpse of God, they want nothing to do with him. Not the true and living God. Again, if it's a God of your own imagination, that's a little bit different. But I'm telling you, go ahead. Talk the truth about God. Talk about the demands of the gospel to your unbelieving friends and see what happens. They're going to turn aside. They're going to walk away. They're going to you know, they're, they're, they're change the subject on you. Well, let's talk about something else. They'll deviate from that. Or they'll get angry and hostile. Because that's what that total depravity does. Right, we don't want to seek him. I'm going to turn away when I see him. When you talk to him, I'm going to change the subject. Well, let's not talk about religion. Let's not talk about politics. Let's not talk about this. Let's not talk about that. That's turning away. That's turning aside. Not until he turns our hearts towards him and he does that in effectual calling. When he calls us to himself, then we can't resist to follow him. We love following. Don't you love following Jesus Christ? Don't you love it? Don't you love talking about him? Don't you love knowing him? He changes us. Otherwise, we turn aside. Now we see him and we run to him. We can't wait to meet him. We can't wait to get up in the morning and meet him in his word, meet him in prayer, meet him in the means of grace, meet him in fellowship as we come together with one another. Amen. Praise God. He turns us to himself. Otherwise, we turn aside. 
Our total depravity affects our actions. He says no one does good. And this one seems to be a tough one for a lot of people. No one does good. Listen, when he's talking about that, he's talking about meeting the perfect standard of God, right? That perfect, because people do good things every day. And I have people tell me, I know the nicest people. They're not Christians, but they're nicer than Christians. They'll do more for you than professing Christians will do for you. They'll help you out when you're in trouble. They're noble. They're kind. Look what's happening with with the aftermath of the hurricane. People reaching out to people, and you see that nobility, and you see that sacrifice from people that don't call themselves Christians. They do heroic things every day. They do noble things every day. They're kind because we're image bearers of God. Right? That shows that we're made in his image for sure. But here's the deal when he says no one does good. It affects our actions. Our total depravity, our sinfulness affects our actions because they cannot merit favor of salvation. They can't merit favor or salvation. Listen, every single work would have to be perfect in every way. Every single good work that you do, you can't just say, well, I've done this good, and I've done this good, and I tried over here. You want to merit then every single good thing that you've ever done must be done perfectly in every single way. That means in your motivation, that means in your intention, and that means in your execution, right? Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who was unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. No good deed, no kind act is inherently good in and of itself and unaffected by sin. Nor is it good enough to undo the penalty of sin, especially in that regard. Remember that. It's not that people don't do good, not that people don't do kind things. They absolutely do, but they don't merit. They can't undo what sin has done. So we see people, they'll do good things all the time. You know, the people pray to praise a good thing, but some will do it in public so they'll be noticed, right? Or if you do something that's, that's really helpful, if you give to something, and it's nice to know that you're noticed and people kind of give you that time. We have to check our intentions, our motives. We always kind of want to let people know what we've done. And I think of the medical field, and there are so many wonderful doctors and nurses who truly care but there are enough who do very good things, life-saving things on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, there's some questionable motives for like kind of even being in there. Like if you're in that profession, you know some of those doctors and nurses, well, they care to an extent and they're good, but some are just there for other possible reasons. And I know that I see some people shaking their head there in the medical field. I'm not trying to disparage. I'm just saying we could do good things, wonderful things, life-saving things even, our motives and our intentions aren't always lining up with it. It's not always altruist, altruistic, you know, this, this amazing selfless act all the time. It's just not like that. You, could, you can go to any field. You can talk about police officers. You can talk about any civil servants, any, any of us in that, in that way. Listen, I want you to talk to the kindest person that you know. Talk to the nicest person that you know, and they'll acknowledge that they're not. Why don't you talk to them? And it's not that they're just kind of being humble, oh, I'm not that nice. You talk to the nicest person you know, and they're going to tell you that you're, I'm not the nicest person. I mean, I wish I was like that person. That's kind of what they'll say. Why? Because we know ourselves. Because you know that even the kindest person knows how nasty they can be. Right? But such a nice person, such a good person, so helpful all the time. You talk to that person, 
And in an honest moment, they're going to tell you how nasty they could be, how foolish they could be, how fearful they are, how prideful they can be, even in their nice and kindness. They want to be known as a nice and kind person by that way, so they try to almost sometimes keep up that persona. Got to be careful, man, how selfish they could be. There's only one who has done good, purely good in every way, and his name is Jesus Christ, and we need his goodness upon us. We don't manufacture that goodness. His goodness. So he goes on and he transitions now to particular ways that our depravity manifests itself, our depravity in action. And he uses body parts. We're going to go through this. Paul says this, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So what's the first part, body part that he uses to kind of demonstrate, show us our depravity? Our depravity shows up in our speech, doesn't it? Our sinful nature, that, that, that sinfulness. But you have to understand that our speech is actually a reflection of what's in our hearts, right? Jesus says this, Matthew 15. He called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He goes on to say in verse 17 and 18, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and that defiles a person. James 3, 4 through 12 you know these, this passage, let me turn to it, and I'll read it, because it talks about the tongue, it talks about the damage, it talks about the, that sin that comes through, even in the way that we speak, even in the things that we say. So, chapter, if you want to turn, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. James says this, and you know these verses. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They, they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by very, a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and it has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt can a salt pond yield fresh water. So you see that emphatically speaking of, that. that's what he's saying, that Depravity affects our hearts, our minds, and it comes out in what we say. The venom of poisonous snake. The poisonous snake venom, the idea behind that is painful, damaging, your cells are damaged, and usually deadly. So how do we use our tongue, and how does it come out? You know, I know we struggle with this as Christians as well, but if you're not a believer, and think again before you're a believer, how you used your tongue, and you knew how you did it. You used it to tell all your lies that you told. 
right? To get over on people, not thinking twice about it. You used it to make threats to other people. You used it to gossip and to spread falsehoods about others. You used it to wound people. You knew just how to hurt them by what you said. You knew what their weaknesses were. You knew what to say to set them off, to trigger them, to do whatever you wanted to do to them. You used it to constantly complain, to curse, to take the Lord's name in vain, right? To, to, to show contempt to, towards him as you blamed him for everything that's going on wrong in your life, for all of your troubles, as you denied him with your mouth, as you mocked him with the words that you spoke. See, he says that. That's the tongue. It's an open grave. And that's a stench, too. Those, they had graves... Not like today where you're buried six feet under in a cave, but when you remember when they were gonna take Lazarus out? No, no, no. He stinketh. You know, we can't. It's gonna just that stench is there. He's likening it to that. That's the depravity. That's the sin. That's how it shows up in our lives. When we wound each other in this way, when we wound each other with our words in that way, very deliberately, very harshly, when you deny your maker, we were all there. You know people that are there today. And even you today, Christian, need to watch your tongue and how you speak, how you say what you say, and even what you say. And all of us need the one who brings the words of life. We've got to watch the words that come out of our mouth. We need the one who brings the word of life, who is the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He brings life. He brings love. He brings words of healing. He brings forgiveness. He brings truth. And you need the Word of God, for in Him is life, and His light, life is the light of men. We need Christ. We need the Word of God. He goes on in verses 15 through 17. Our depravity shows up in our attitude and our actions regarding others. Look, he says this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are full of ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Our depravity is on display. It shows up in our attitude and actions regarding others. When he talks about feet, when he talks about walking on a path, that's a metaphor. That's the idea for walking, right? And walking in Scripture often refers to our lives, like what characterizes our life, char uh, what characterizes your life. And, and the idea here is, is the idea of you're not showing any kind of restraint. And think about it, before you were in Christ, and even now we struggle with this, we don't show that restraint. When we wanted something, we went for it, right? Right or wrong. We wanted something, we took it. We wanted something, <clears throat> we wouldn't manipulate until we got it. Right? That, that's that idea. We're, we're, we're not... We're not fleeing temptation, but we're walking headlong towards sin. He says very swiftly. They're quickly doing it, willingly doing it. That's a willfulness of our sinful actions to get what we want. Now, you think you're okay because it says <clears throat> they're swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Swift to shed blood. Well, I've never killed anybody, right? It's, it, it, it encompasses the literal, literal meaning but also the spiritual implication is this idea when he talks about when he talks about um, shedding blood, ruin in their misery in their path, the way of peace they have not known. Behind that idea is the implication of pride, right? That's what we lived in, of arrogance, of self-centeredness, of a selfish person. A person who's always ready for confrontation, man. Think about before you're a Christian. Most of us just kind of ready for a confrontation. We always know what we want. We know that we're right, and we're going to make sure that other people know that as well. 
kind of self-centeredness, not really interested in reconciliation, not too concerned with maintaining relationships, not counting others as more important than yourself. We never did that before we were Christians, not consistently, not as we ought to. That's what he's talking about here. That depravity shows up in our lives and how we treat other people, especially when we want to get what we want, what we think is going to make us happy, what we think is going to fulfill us. We're just going to bulldoze our way. We're going to go for whatever we want to do. We're not going to honor God in our relationships. No, right? If you're, if you're dating another person, you're not going to honor God in that relation. You're going to get what you want. And ultimately, usually it ends up having relations, right? That's kind of oftentimes before you're a Christian, that's where you want to end up. That's what you do. Use it. You get. You do what you have to do to get there. That's the idea behind this. It's a prideful, self-centered selfishness, ready for confrontation, not concerned about maintaining relationships, intentionally hurtful, always right, mostly angry, little patience or compassion with others, constantly complaining and just bitter. That's the idea, and that characterizes so many before they're in Jesus Christ. It manifests itself in different ways, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but there's a discontentedness apart from Christ. You don't have peace apart from Christ. So you're trying to find and fulfill it in any way that you can. You're swift to do these things. Total depravity working itself out in our lives. See. You need the one who has shed his own blood. Doesn't shed blood, he shed his own blood. He took the misery and the pain and the punishment for sin so as to bring peace and reconciliation between you, the sinner, and God, the Holy One, in salvation. And also give peace and rest to that restless heart. See, this whole section here is about a sinful restlessness kind of getting, trying to get what we want no matter the cost, things that are going to make us happy no matter who it hurts because I want to be satisfied. Now, what about my happiness? What about the things that I want? What about the things that I desire? So it's going to be okay to do these certain things if it's unethical, if it's not right, because this is what I want. See, that's it. You're not factoring God into your life and into your decisions and into your thinking. And this is what it looks like. The Christ is the one who brings peace. Christ is the one who sheds his blood freely, for he's the prince of peace. And then in verse 18, we're going to stop here for today. This is the depravity on display. There's no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> and he talks about the eyes. And this, this is, um, I think as Christians, we understand this, and this is so humbling to us and and for us in this way. Because the eyes, when he talks about this, when he says there's no fear of God before their eyes, right? So we have the tongue, we have the feet, now we have the eyes. And 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 it speaks and you know this. You knew this you know this because before you were a Christian, this was you and those around you who are in Christ, this is them today, now. That that there's a boldness, there's a haughtiness, there's an arrogance. There's a self-assuredness, right? A brashness without restraint and without a care or concern for God at all. That's, that's especially now in, in, in the time that we're living in. You, people are living their lives, lives as if God doesn't exist. And that's what this means. How dare you? How can you? 
they're not, there's not even a pretense. At least back in the day, people had a little bit of fear of God. There was still... Now, today, God doesn't... No, He doesn't even enter in to the, to the conversation. And if you bring Him up in this way, in a biblical way, you are going to be scorned and scoffed. Try that. See what happens. But the idea is, is that, that you live your life as if God doesn't even exist and as if you'll never have to answer to Him. And that's where we find ourselves, people, right now. And we have, we have a, a world full of people in that way. They're too smart for God. They're too wise for God. They're too realistic to believe in, in this God, let alone worry about what he requires. Do you see that? Do you see? There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's almost like they're challenging God. Yeah, look at me, God. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I'm going to be like this. And it doesn't matter because you don't even exist. And you're not even. And what can you do? That's why we're crying out for judgment, right? Lord, Lord, please, how much longer are you going to wait? Right? It's like the kid who has no fear of his parents. Right? We're living in a day and age where, where there's so many children that are just kind of not being parented whatsoever. So these kids have no fear, fear of parents. They have no fear of authority. They think, those kids think they can do whatever they want and they could disrespect their parents, and they could talk to their parents any way that they want to, and they could smack their parents, and they don't have to listen to their parents, and they're flippant towards their parents, and they don't think any, you know, without expectation of consequence. That's kind of how we are today. We're like kids who have no respect or regard for our parents. I saw this one little kid at Target. It was a while ago. He must have been four or five years old, and I, I suppose he was with his father, and he wanted something. And, he, and I was just kind of walking behind them, and this kid was just up on this man, and he's saying, I want this, and I want this now, and you're going to get this for me. And the dad's like trying to ignore him at first. He said, you're giving me to this. How dare you not give this to me? You're so wrong. I hate you. And just watch. I, I almost intervened. I, it was everything I could not to get involved. Like, that's your kid. He can't talk. And he starts hitting his dad and smacking his dad. Next thing I know, I walk through the store. He's at the counter buying the thing that the kid wanted, and that kid had a little sly smile because that's where we're at. And that's, that's kind of the attitude behind this. There's that haughtiness. There's no fear of God, so they're going to do whatever they want, whatever seems right in their own eyes. And that's, that's what we're saying. They don't, they don't fear judgment. And you can go on for a long time, like the song says, but sooner or later, God is going to cut you down. Listen, in this section, as he closes out our sin, and he's going to turn the page. Next week, we'll finish up, but then we're going to turn the page from our sinfulness, from our depravity, what you need to understand, what you need to um, labor on, especially as you're talking to others. We talk about our sinfulness because then it turns to our salvation and the grace. When we see how sinful we are, it makes grace all that much more amazing. By grace, you need to know the Lord, the one who makes himself known, what it means to fear him, And to know Christ is to love Christ. To know Christ is to respect Christ. To know Christ is to honor Christ. To know Christ is to worship Christ. To know Christ is to glorify Christ. And to know Christ is to obey Christ. To know Christ is to give your entire being to him because he's given life to you. And that comes into clear focus when you see how sinful, how rebellious, how wrong you were and yet he shed his love upon you.
That's why we say grace is amazing. That's why I love being reformed, if you want to put it that way, because it, it shows how deep his love is for us. And we're so undeserving and so sinful. We're not spiritually good. We're not good and deserving, you know, just kind of a hand up or a pat on the back. We deserve wrath and judgment, but instead he's given us love and grace. Our deep depravity, our total depravity shows our desperate need. His deep love delivers us and that brings us life, peace, hope, now and for all eternity.